we solved some real problems. We said one of the reasons we launched Casper direct-to-consumer is we said no one wants to step foot into a mattress store. You immediately feel like you're getting ripped off. You feel like you have to take a shower afterwards. Welcome everybody to In Conversation with Shopify Plus. I'm your host, Jason Buckland, and we welcome you back to a brand new episode of our show where we speak with the very best and brightest in business. Our guest today is one of five co-founders to a brand you know well, but remains in many ways today as its steady hand and operational leader. Philip Krim is the CEO of Casper, which if you know anything about the direct consumer space, you know there are few names that have grown as prominent as the mattress brand, which prefers now to be known as a sleep brand for indeed no longer our beds in a box, Casper's lone product. They also sell sheets, pillows, bed frames, anything and everything related to the idea of sleep is what Casper wants to be known for. Philip is a Texas guy schooled at the University of Texas, so he brings a different perspective to his brand than many other D2C founders of his caliber, who almost always come from the Northeast with Harvard MBAs or Wharton graduate degrees. Stick around with us for the next little while because Philip is gonna tell us about navigating one of the hardest issues for companies of any size, order fulfillment and inventory management, He's going to lay out a blueprint for Casper to become known just as Nike is for exercise or Whole Foods is for nutrition as the number one brand on the market associated with sleep. And Philip details for us how Casper has not only moved forward the idea of buying a bed in this way, but also has helped usher in an era where consumers have normalized much more the buying of everything on the internet. Before Casper came along, very few people were buying uh, their mattress online, you know, the, the market data would show like two, three percent. Today, it's probably 15 percent. And I think Casper had a lot to do with driving consumers to trust an online process. Today, a lot of this feels just normal or obvious. But when we launched a little over seven years ago, it really wasn't. All right, we go to him now. Our guest today is the chief executive of really one of the hallmark direct-to-consumer brands we have celebrated for much of the past decade. Philip Krim is also a co-founder of Casper, the sleep company he helped bring to market in 2014 and helped take public in 2020. He joins us from his home outside New York City. Philip, it's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. Well, thank you for having me. Pumped to be here. Philip, there are a million learnings from the founding story of Casper I want to get into soon, but let's begin with a question, if we may, about the state of the union of your company today. As we mentioned, Casper is a public company now, and as CEO each quarter, you kind of have to be trotted out in front of investors and address the health of your business over and again. And I'm curious about a few things mentioned in one of your latest conference calls about where Casper is now. Sure. Relative to the pandemic, you've been open about some challenges with your supply chain late in 2020, but also that this global shutdown has actually increased your demand across the same time period and that we're seeing increased suburbanization that is people moving out of tiny city apartments and presumably in this case into homes that they need to buy new mattresses for. And also with stores and malls reopening, your retail distribution network is so vast now with your own stores and retail partners like Target and Sam's Club that it's never been easier to come across Casper products in person. What are the specific markers, Philip, you are looking at for your business today to signal an emergence from the effects the pandemic may have had on Casper? The pandemic has impacted our business like others in a variety of ways, some that could be anticipated once the pandemic got underway and some that 
continue to surprise us. Overall, what I'm looking for is, is really kind of channel by channel to understand where the consumer is going as we emerge from a pandemic. So Q2 of last year, as the pandemic hit, we had to shut down all of our stores. I think at the time we had maybe 60 stores, give or take, and it was really painful. And, and for almost all of Q2, our stores were shut down. We had to put our retail team on furlough. And obviously, consumer behavior started to change dramatically. And it's been changing throughout the pandemic. And it means that consumers are shopping channels differently. It means that our supply chains have to respond differently. And so I think 2021 will continue to be a very dynamic environment for a company like Casper. We have to continue to let the consumers lead the way. I think one of the things that we talked a lot about at the time of the IPO is the virtue and benefit of being an omni-channel business with our e-commerce business, our owned and operated stores, and our retail partners. And I think that that idea was tested more so than we could have ever imagined throughout 2020 with the pandemic and continues to be something that I think is a huge benefit today. We have to be where consumers are, and it's hard to anticipate where consumers are in this dynamic environment. And we have to make sure that we offer them the right products, services we can ship and fulfill on the promise that Casper has with everyone. We're looking at the tape every day. We're trying to understand what's going on. And the mile markers are just understanding when consumers kind of settle into a new normal. And I don't think we know what that looks like yet. Okay, so we mentioned we may go back a little in this interview, and the Casper founding story is well told, but I'll hit some of the key beats here to set us up. Along with four other co-founders, including Luke Sherwin, Casper's chief creative officer, who I think I have this right once famously remarked, why is there no Warby Parker for mattresses? You debut Casper in 2014, and thanks to some marketing strategies we'll get into shortly, it is a hit right away, and you sell $1 million in your first month in business alone. What follows, though, is perhaps the first great challenge in Casper's history, fulfillment issues, and what I imagine must have been a great test of wills in those early days in that, for some time, Casper was unable to meet the demand it had generated. What did you learn then about logistics as they relate to the supply chain for your products, Philip, that might translate well as advice to other companies that can't quite seem to pin down that balance of either holding too much or holding too little inventory? Logistics is tough. Inventory management is tough. It's tripped up the largest of large retailers and it certainly tripped us up as a, a startup. And so it's something where you just have to think about the kind of risk reward. And I think we were very fortunate in our early days that you know being a direct to consumer company, talking to our customers, having that relationship from the beginning bought us goodwill with our customers. And so we had customers that were very patient with us. We had to talk to them regularly about what was going on and it, it was painful because, you know, we were promising two, three, four week deliveries and, and weren't able to do that. It ended up stretching to six, eight, 10 week deliveries at its worst. And, you know, for, for a company that wanted to build a great brand, a great experience, a really vocal, loyal fan base, disappointing people out of the gate was was really painful. And I, I thought it was an existential risk to the business at the time. And so we were all very focused on the supply chain. We worked with our suppliers, well, really at the time it was a single supplier to just beg to get more product out of the door. It, it took a lot of uh, effort with our customers. And we did things like buy customers aero beds on Amazon just so they had somewhere to sleep if they didn't have a bed until we could ship it. And what emerged from that, I think, is, is really key to the virtue of a DTC business, which is just a really loyal fan base who loved the product, who loved that we had that relationship with them. We didn't have to go through a third party. We didn't have to try to figure out who our customers were. We were able to talk to them, communicate with them. And I think that that understanding and connection with those customers is what led to the virality of Casper and why so many people, even to this day, share their Casper story. They share their unboxing about Casper. 
And I think one of the things that I really try to emphasize with the company, even at our scale today, is just the importance of knowing our customer, talking to our customer, and putting the customer at the center of everything we do. And, and we're often reminded of that by talking about these early stories where we had logistics issues, we had supply chain problems that felt insurmountable at the time. But customers that you know love the brand, understand the product quality, understand that, that what we're delivering, when they understand that, that they can be patient and ultimately get a better night of sleep and are grateful for what Casper is working on. And so it's, it's really just keeping an eye on the balance of what the consumer needs and trying to be transparent and, and give good feedback, all the while working with a supply chain that, that certainly can be difficult to deal with. In your earliest days, what were the steps that Casper took to get somewhere closer to a mastery of your own inventory management? It's tough to say we were anywhere close to mastery. Um, for us, our goal was just to keep up with demand. So over time, we tried to get additional manufacturers stood up with us. And we were a business that always did our own design and engineering of our products. So we couldn't just go to any factory and say, we want to buy this off your shelf. We said, here's the spec we want to build. Can you build it? And then we would you know, use quality control and QA with them to, to see if they were building the product that we wanted to build. So it took time to build out a diverse supply chain network, to build out a diverse set of suppliers. We eventually looked globally for those suppliers. We worked deep within our supply chain to get more capacity throughout the different points of supply. We just constantly were trying to keep our head above water. And so it never felt like we were at a point where we had this mastered and we would always look to kind of keep running quickly. So, you know, we, we had our e-commerce business. We started to do more things with stores and pop-ups and bringing physical inventory closer to customers and seeing the value there of offering kind of real-time delivery. So in New York City, even since we were a young company, you could get a bed delivered same day on delivery. That didn't exist in this industry before Casper came along. We've always tried to push the envelope on the customer experience, which then requires us to push the envelope on our warehousing, logistics, and supply chain. That's kind of been the name of the game. It's just what can we do to elevate the customer experience and then let the rest of the business figure it out. So there were, as we said, some reasons for that initial rush of demand. And those were some very shrewd and very smart marketing plays that Casper made even before it launched. And there are two strategies here I'd love to dig into here, Philip, and get not only your advice on, but your evaluation and hindsight of how they worked for you. The first is media articles about the brand. And you've been open that you used an external agency to help spread the early word in the press about Casper. For anyone listening from a company that might find themselves struggling with positive media attention, can you share with us the mechanics of how that worked for Casper? What types of coverage you found to be most valuable for your company and what types of coverage that maybe weren't worth the investment in hindsight? In my mind, earned media or paid media are just two different mediums to tell a story, to convey a story. And in either case, you have to have a story that's different, that's unique, that's valuable to your audience. Otherwise, it generally just won't work. Paid media, it, it won't work and generate a good return. And earned media, they just won't report on it. And I think what's unique about Casper that continues to be something that people report on and that we're able to get you know good responses on through both paid and earned media is just we try to be innovative. We try to be different. Um, at the time of launching, we designed and engineered our own bed. We combined materials that had never been combined before to create what we were calling the world's most comfortable bed, outrageously comfortable bed. And then we were able to deliver that. We were able to compress it into a box that's about the size of a mini fridge and ship it via UPS anywhere in the country. And like I said, in New York, we could deliver it same day. There are a lot of aspects of that just didn't exist. People didn't know about that before Casper came along. And so it was different. It was interesting. And we solved some real problems. 
Um, you know, we, we said one of the reasons we launched Casper direct to consumer is we said no one wants to step foot into a mattress store. You immediately feel like you're getting ripped off. You, you feel like you have to take a shower afterwards. And we just thought that that was the antithesis of the brand that we wanted to create with Casper. And we said, you know, buying mattresses statistically ranked worse than pretty much anything else out there in the retail environment, worse than buying a used car. Consumers felt overwhelmed. They felt like they were getting taken advantage of, and it just felt very sleazy. And so we said, what do we do to create the opposite of that? How do we create a transparent experience where you feel like you're getting a good value, a good deal, and you're, you're dealing with a brand and business where you, you feel like you're getting treated fairly? And that's how we thought about Casper. And that was different. That was unique in this industry. That didn't exist before. Before Casper came along, very few people were buying their mattress online. You know, the, the market data would show like 2 3%. Today, it's you know, probably 15%. And, and I think Casper had a lot to do with driving consumers to trust an online process where before most consumers thought they had to lay on a mattress in order to do it. And we really try to break down the customer journey at every step of the way and, and think about how could we reinvent it. And today, a lot of this feels you know just normal or obvious. But when we launched a little over seven years ago, it, it really wasn't. The idea of trying a mattress in your home risk-free without being out of pocket at all, if you didn't love the mattress, that, that didn't exist before Casper. So we invented the 100-night trial which again is today a bit of an industry standard. But we said, what, why should you be out money if you're sleeping on a product that you bought to sleep better and you ultimately don't sleep better? You know, that just seems like a fair thing to do. And so we tried to break down every step of the customer journey and reinvent it. And I think end to end that felt very new, very refreshing for this category. So I think that's why the press reported on it. I think it's why the brand connected with consumers, why consumers shared it and referrals have been such a big part of our business and why our paid media efforts also resonated and worked. And we were able to tell stories that connected with people in a way that a brand or business hadn't done in this category before. You are the CEO of Casper Philip, though some of our audience may not know that your background lies in marketing and especially so digital marketing. So Casper has embarked on a few things to spread the word about itself. In New York City, for example, you've run very prominent ad campaigns throughout the subway system, which I think have been very well received. But for anyone not living in New York, the avenue that was perhaps the most notable way Casper entered the popular consciousness was through podcast ads. Casper really was one of the most prominent early examples, I think, of a D2C brand investing in, and I imagine seeing strong results from, the nascent days of podcast advertising. Looking back, what were the key takeaways as you learned them from advertising a brand in podcasts? It's a good question. I, we, we were very, I think, lucky to be early with podcasts, but we started to think about you know, our daily lives and how could we connect with consumers who, you know, were, were shopping like we were. And we kept talking about these ideas of how do we tap into communities where you can convey trust and, and where, you know, you're able to feel like a part of the community. So you mentioned subway advertising. We were riding the subway to work and looking at subway ads right after we had waken up and we were riding the subway home after working all day and looking at subway ads. And we just thought, there had to be a better way to connect with people that were doing that right after they woke up and right before they were going to bed. And, and maybe they would think about Casper next time they needed to upgrade their mattress or bedroom. Uh, the same thing was with podcasts. You know, we were listening to podcasts. We were fans of them. And we saw that each podcast ultimately became kind of a, a sense of community. You had a podcast host that oftentimes was, was loved by the people who listened to the podcast. That was certainly true with us and the podcast we were listening to. And we said, you know, let's just sponsor them to try to be supportive of the community. And we're explicit with, you know, we, we want to support it. We'd like for the podcast host or the team to try our mattresses and try our sleep products. 
And, you know, fortunately, a lot of the hosts loved it and they were happy to talk about it to the audience. And it, it just um, it felt very authentic to kind of the brand that Casper wanted to create. And it was a good medium for us to convey the story in a pretty rich way. You're, you're able to really paint a robust picture through a podcast ad more so than you can with some other advertising opportunities. So podcasts worked out really well for us. And uh, it's definitely one of the, the key ways that we built the brand in the early days. And last item on podcast advertising, Philip, Casper leaned heavily on the space when your business was in its earliest days. Does an ad strategy with podcasts still make sense for companies when they become much more mature? You know, it, it certainly can. It, it depends on who the podcast um, host is, who the audience is, and then, of course, what it costs to advertise with the podcast. And so if it's the right audience and has the right reach and the right kind of economics, it definitely can work with especially digital advertising and podcasts, not exactly that, but kind of same idea. You have to always be experimenting. You can't assume that what worked yesterday will work tomorrow. And with podcasts, you're seeing exactly what's happening in other social channels, which is big advertisers come in, they don't do as much tracking, they have bigger budgets, they don't care about kind of short term payback. And it changes the economics of when a channel can work or not work. And so, um, you know, it, it worked when we launched Casper back in April of 2014. I, I doubt it would work anywhere near the same degree today if we launched. But there are things today that weren't around back then. And so I just think it requires companies to think about new, innovative ways to, to reach audiences in hopefully an authentic way that connects. And if you are connecting with the audience, then, you know, hopefully the economics makes sense or hopefully you can do it in a earned way like we talked about with press or through social followings and channels with big social media followings. So not to give away the secret sauce here or anything, Philip, but is there an area you see that is ripe for return on investment now compared to where podcasts were, say, five, six, seven years ago? With Casper, we have to think about kind of scale opportunities. And I would say we, we do see saturation levels with obvious channels like Facebook and Google. And so there it is a constant CPM game. And how do we evolve our strategy and our creative in order to combat rising CPMs? Um, so we have been more focused on some of the emerging platforms, whether that's Pinterest or Snapchat. I would say we were late to scaling with YouTube, but we've been focused on YouTube and making real progress there. Um, and the idea is that we just need a multitude of platforms so that if the CPMs do spike in any one or two channels, we're able to shift dollars around in a fungible way uh, in order to kind of hit the, the steady customer acquisition costs that we aim for. And so it really is just a constant game of, of experimentation, testing, learning. If you find something that works, scale it up. If not, cut it and just move on to the next experiment. And, and it has to be across kind of multiple platforms, multiple creative ideas because creative fatigue starts to happen. And hopefully, you know, you find a campaign and a channel and, and you know, content that works well. And, and so Casper has a good track record, I think, of, of pushing ourselves to reinvent ourselves because we worry we're constantly paranoid about, you know, changing landscapes and, and having big advertisers come in and really distort things and making sure that we can be responsive to that. So we have covered here how Casper was able to light a spark for itself in the marketplace and this stage for a company is always very interesting. The first real signs of success and the need then to grow from within and scale. We likely have some of our audience here that is in this very stage today. We hear a lot about the challenges of hiring Philip for a growing company. From your experience, what were the roles in your mind that were crucial to fill in the early days of Casper? The ones that make you say, you know, without this specific position filled, 
Casper doesn't get to the place it is today. So I, I would say the two areas that we were focused on in our early days was really, you know, marketing. So we needed to make sure we could keep creating demand and, you know, testing boundaries about where we could put our message and develop audiences and then supply chain and operations so we could fulfill on that demand. And those were the two that we were constantly building and making sure that one kept up with the other. And one of the nice things about having five co-founders is we were able to divide and conquer a lot. And so we, we did try to stay lean and scrappy and, and really it felt like continues to feel like you know running to one fire to the other but um, I think we were we were able to kind of thread the needle on keeping demand going and, and making sure we were investing in growing demand but not so fast that the wheels came off so we were able to keep up with that demand through growing our operational base. Raising money is something Casper has done notably several seed rounds of financing often with them an accompanying news story about the new valuation of the company the most famous example of this for Casper was in 2019, when the company joined the Unicorn Club around the same time as Glossier and Rent the Runway as new DTC brands with a valuation in excess of $1 billion. You've been open that in the early days, Casper was said no to by a few dozen investors before you found the right fit. Let me start with the first of a two-parter here on funding. I imagine the appeal to raising money is quite clear and quite intoxicating just as a general principle. But in your experience, what are the telltale signs that raising capital and, of course, taking on new investors and outside voices and all that comes with that is actually the right choice for a company? It's a tough question. There's certainly no nothing wrong with bootstrapping a business and, and not accepting outside capital. And there's nothing wrong to accepting outside capital and seeing if that helps you um, be able to pull forward your vision for the business. And so it really just comes down to what do you want as founders of the business? and do you want additional voices and, and hands around the table to help with you growing your business? Or do you want to go at it alone? Do you want to you know, have the added pressure that comes with accepting capital from others? Or do you want to just use your own capital and, and invest in the business and, and grow it organically? There's certainly no right or wrong answer. And different companies have chosen different paths and taken the business and taken the founders down its own journey. And so you know, it, it also becomes a different decision early on with you know seed and series a money than it does become later stage but at the end of the day if, if you're accepting someone else's capital it's going to come with strings and and so you need to make sure that you are thoughtful about that and that once you commit to it that you accept kind of the responsibilities that come with that um, but again no no right or wrong answer and it's just a question that every founder gets to ask themselves what were the right things casper did when courting investors and conversely when you look back is there anything you do differently about anything related to raising money? I think Casper has been and, and continues to be very fortunate to have an investor base that's just very supportive of the vision that the founders had from the very beginning. We don't feel like we've come anywhere close to accomplishing our vision. We continue to talk about how does Casper become the world's first sleep brand? You know, if I said, okay, you, you want to go exercise and run faster, you know, you would think about brands like Nike and Under Armour or Lululemon. If, if I said, you know, you should start to eat better. You might start to shop at Whole Foods and buy organic or maybe try Beyond Meat uh, or other solutions. But when I, if I say, like, go get a better night of sleep, there's really no brand that comes to mind for most consumers. We want that to be Casper. We think that's a huge opportunity, something that will take years, decades to accomplish. But we're very happy where we are seven years into our journey, and, and we think we have a long way to go. And what was important to us from the beginning, and, and you know, e even as recent as the IPO back in February of 2020, was to tell the vision, 
talk about how we're going to stay true to that vision, allowing people to get the best night of sleep possible is what, what we go to work with at Casper. And we're going to continue to build that one step at a time. Taking a quick break from our chat with Philip Krim to bring you a preview of our next episode in this series with our guest, Ariel K. Ariel is the co-founder and CEO of Parachute, which in the same breath as we speak about what Casper did for the online bed market, Parachute no doubt has done as well for the online bedding and linens market. Ariel joins us to chat about exactly who the most important hires you should make are if you want to scale a direct-to-consumer brand. She chats with us about what she sees as the future of work, about the hybrid model between office work and working from home that Parachute has rolled out that she expects to be closer to the norm across her industry. And Ariel has some strong opinions about discounting that if you're behind a D2C company, you may just want to hear. Discounting is, is a slippery slope. It's really easy to get addicted to the excitement around, you know, accelerated revenue. It's a hard relationship with a customer to, to back out of and one that I think can dilute the brand and can tell the customer essentially that they don't ever need to buy full price. That was Ariel K, who was next up in our series. Before we get back to Philip Krim, this show was brought to you by Shopify Plus, the enterprise platform that powers the very best brands in the market from Allbirds and Gymshark to Staples and Heinz. And you can find out more today at shopify.com plus. Now, without further ado, let's get back to Philip Krim. Well, you've expertly prefaced my next question, Philip, which is perhaps the ultimate fundraising exercise came last year. Casper went public, as we mentioned, at a well-covered IPO in February. Take this question whichever direction you'd like, but what changes about a company when it goes public? You know, it's uh, operationally a a lot changes just that there's new standards that you have to operate with. You have to report on your business, as you mentioned, quarterly and update investors formally. The way you talk about the business is, is much more formalized. You're held accountable to the things that you say you're going to do on a quarterly basis. And so there does become a different cadence to the business. There becomes a, a different formality with kind of the investor relation side of what you do. We try to make sure that we are delivering on you know the near-term expectations that investors have with the business, but also continuing to invest in, in the long-term vision that you know we've talked about with what we want to accomplish with Casper. So it's a different investor than maybe who we, we worked with privately when we were a private company. But at the end of the day, investors want to hear what the vision is for the company. They want to hear how you're going to achieve it. And they want to see proof points that you're doing exactly that. And so I think that's what we were able to deliver privately and are focused on doing publicly. And so at the end of the day, we still want to run a good business, build a big business and are working hard to do so. And for you personally, Philip, I see you on TV an awful lot more these days and on conference calls every quarter, fielding open questions and inquiries about the company that I imagine are much more pressing or combative than I'm sure they were when your financial information was still private. What has been different in your professional life as the CEO of a now public company? It's been interesting to learn about being the CEO of a public company entirely in a pandemic. So our first quarterly call was done totally remote. It's definitely been a, a learning process with a steep curve for me that we've done it in times that that you know companies and CEOs have never experienced before. It definitely was personally on my bucket list to to be a CEO of a public company and you know beyond my wildest dreams to start a company and, and run it as a public company. So uh, in that sense, it's been awesome. 
and just learning what it means to be a public company CEO and what it means to have to you know spend a lot of time on the investor relations functions and work with CFOs who have been public company CFOs and what that means from an accounting and controllership standard. You know, it's been a lot of learning from me and, and we, you know, I have great executives running the company next to me, so I'm able to lean on them and rely on them to help us think about what it takes to successfully run a public company. And so overall, I found it very interesting. I've been learning a ton. I continue to learn a ton and just very lucky that I have great people next to me uh, running the company that have a, a lot of experience in doing so both in, in private and public markets and then continuing to just stay focused on, you know, being heads down to build the business, even if that is in the public market, still making sure that we're focused on the day-to-day execution, which is exactly what we have been doing. Well, let's explore if we can one final note on this that'll lead into my next question. I watched an interview you gave with CNBC on the day of your IPO last year, and there was this moment when one of the hosts was questioning what he referred to as general administrative costs for Casper that in his mind were too high, or at least as he noted, higher as a percentage of revenue compared to that of some of your competitors. And correct me if I've mischaracterized you here, Philip, but there was this moment where you almost had to be a little defensive saying, look, those costs are the money we are putting back into the business, most notably into Casper Labs, which is the San Francisco-based research and development arm of your company. Now, I bet all that research and development Casper does doesn't come cheap. In your mind, Philip, perhaps especially so now, given increased scrutiny as a public business to show profit, what have you found to be the right mix for Casper in terms of reinvesting capital to improve your product line? At a high level, I ask myself, you know, what, what does it take to build a great enduring brand and business? And from the beginning of Casper all the way through today, I tell myself and I tell our team that if we have a great product that truly performs at the top of its ability to help people get a better night of sleep, And we deliver that product with a great experience. So the brand is something that stands out because of such an amazing experience. We're going to go on to build a really big business. And that's what we continue to be focused on. So we invest in having the best sleep products in the market, period. So products that that constantly win awards because they are innovative when it comes to the, the quality of sleep one can achieve with a Casper bedroom. That's our Casper mattresses. It's our pillows. It's everything that we have to help you get a best, the best night of sleep possible. And we invest in in making sure that you have the best experience possible. So we are investing in the brand and growing brand awareness and driving more people to sleep with Casper products. And and that's what we've been investing in. And we've been trying to build out distribution behind all of that. So part of our our G&A expenses are running our stores. Today, we have 72 stores that provide a really elevated, wonderful experience when you're shopping for sleep products. And sleep products are a highly considered purchase. You're spending a 30-year life with these products. So we want to make sure that we have the right distribution so you can find our products when you need them and you get the best educational experience around them and you're really learning about what it takes to get the best night of sleep possible and why Casper's products really are elevated from a sleep quality standpoint. And we're making sure that the products live up to the expectations that Casper customers have through the, the R&D and, and work that we're doing with Casper Labs. So we think these are worthwhile investments. We think we've built an incredible foundation for the brand and business and, and what we told investors when we raised our, our capital for the IPO and what we continue to tell investors are that we're building a really big business. We've been investing in the foundation to make sure we can deliver on that. Um, and, and we have a long way to go, but distribution is working to drive more people into Casper products, Casper stores, Casper retail partners. And that's why we are able to drive the growth that we've been achieving and, and why we will continue to do so going forward. 
We mentioned Casper Labs, which is a place where all kinds of things, both conventional and unconventional, I think, are underway. I read a Fast Company piece about Casper from 2017, where your co-founder and chief of product, Jeff Chapin, spoke about these interconnected sleep speakers that played the sounds of birds chirping and wind chimes and things like that, or even projects as wild sounding as a bedroom cabinet that was in essence a toaster to warm your pajamas in the winter. Now, I don't know how much of that was real or certainly if anything came out of those ideas, but Casper's product lines certainly have matured. In addition to mattresses, you now sell bed frames, duvets, pillows, sheets, even glow lights to sit on your nightstand that help you fall asleep and wake better. Can you share, Philip, what the challenges of changing the market perception of your company are? In other words, there was this time when Casper was known only for selling rolled up mattresses in a box. What were the specific steps you took to become known not for your signature product, but as a brand to represent all consumer ideals related to the principle of sleep? It's really a great question and something that we continue to ask ourselves. And and what we've said, again, going back to founding days of Casper is we want to build the world's first sleep brand. But Consumers don't wake up and say, oh, I need to go find a sleep brand. Right now, consumers wake up and and they say, I need to solve specific problems. So let's help them solve specific problems. We started with a mattress. Let's build the most comfortable, best sleeping mattress. And let's make sure we can deliver that and and consumers can shop for that in the best experience possible. Then let's look at pillows. Pillows are actually as important as your mattress to getting a great quality of sleep. And let's keep expanding out from the core mattress to think about how we can reinvent other parts of the sleep experience. And that's what led us to the glow light. It's what led us to our mattress protector, et cetera, you know, the products that you mentioned. Uh, And we said, you know, it's great if consumers think of us as the best mattress out there. And over time, as they realize that we have these other products, they'll start to think of us as the best pillow company, the best glow light company, uh, the, the best solution for your pets with the Casper dog mattress, et cetera. And these things just happen over time and they happen as we build additional tent poles within our business to complement the mattress. So we love that a ton of people sleep on our mattress. They know that they sleep on a Casper mattress and that's why they tell their friends and family about that. Uh, and now more and more people are, are realizing that Casper has the best pillows. And so they're telling their friends and family about that. And that, that's why we're really happy that we sell thousands of pillows through doors at Target every week. And, and so there are just more and more products now that consumers will realize. And over time, that means Casper will be thought of as a sleep destination, not just a mattress destination or not just a mattress and pillow destination. But we have to build those businesses and we have to do that on the backs of great products with the right distribution. And as we do that, Casper will evolve to be a sleep destination. Well, on a similar note, as wide a Delta as being a brand focused on all things sleep seems to entail, in its broadness, there is still specificity in there, in that you have been on record that at this stage, Casper has no interest in pursuing other products inside the home, like tables or chairs or anything that falls outside the bounds of sleep. What advice might you give to other companies on this idea, Philip? You know, Casper has staked itself against being a generalist and instead wants to stay focused on its expertise in one area. What are the considerations a company ought to make to decide whether to broaden or narrow its product offerings? It's a a good and tough question. There's no right or wrong answer necessarily. And it's more of what do you want to build? What do you want to be known for? And then what is the right prioritization for the business and the right timeline for the business? So for us, we we said our North Star is going to be sleep. You know, our our mission is to awaken the potential of a well-rested world. And so if there are products that we can take to market that do that, 
great, that, that kind of falls within our mandate. And then let's think about all of the products that could do that and start to prioritize them. So we, we think about kind of sleep holistically as the sandbox, but we then thought about what are the priorities of products that we want to take to market and what are the right timelines for us to do that. And so we, we've built kind of a good cadence of launching a handful of products that were designed and engineered at Casper Labs, a handful of them every year. And, and we've been able to do that really since we were a couple of years old. And that was the right playbook for us, given the people we had and the, the talent we had and the investment we had with Casper Labs. But that isn't to say that that's the right recipe or playbook for everyone. And so it's really just a business to business question on what is the right cadence? What is the right products that you want to design and engineer? Are there other people's products that you'd want to take to market to complement that? And then just thinking about how to resource that in order to still keep your North Star in mind and, and hopefully make sure that you're rowing in that direction as you build the business. Casper plays in a mattress and bedding market you know to be very competitive, and I've even heard you previously acknowledge that you do have some reasonable and respectable competition out there. Well, Casper jumped out to a big lead in terms of its stake in the space, something again your co-founder Luke Sherwin has made note of is that the consumer doesn't really care about first mover advantage, or at the very least it only buys you so much grace with customers before being first no longer matters as much. In your mind, Philip, are Casper's competitors today other direct-to-consumer mattress and bedding brands that share roots with your company? Or in your mind, are Casper's competitors now more big box, often older retail chains that still serve an overwhelming share of shoppers looking to buy a new bed? I think it's both, but increasingly we are are focused on the legacy players um, because they still are the biggest players. So, you know, the traditional S brands in the space still take up most of the market share And that's because they have the most distribution and they have the highest brand awareness. But what we are trying to educate consumers are that there is real innovation in products, that the products we've designed and engineered and taken to market because we have no legacy constraints around how we think about that just perform better. And so we compete with the upstarts that have followed Casper into the DTC standard. And we we certainly are focused on competing with some of the legacy players who have distribution and increasingly we're focused on building out that distribution, not just with the 72 owned and operated stores that we have, but with great retail partners. So we sell a lot of mattresses with folks like Costco or Raymore and Flanagan or Rooms to Go. And, And in some of those instances, we're competing head to head with those legacy players. And that's where we love the idea of educating consumers about new options, why Casper exists, what technology goes into our products, how you get a more ergonomically supportive, cooler night of sleep with Casper products. And uh, so the goal is to really just provide consumers education so they can choose the right option for them. And increasingly that's Casper, which is is great. And it it means that we are competing with legacy guys, the big guys more and more as, as we continue to grow. I'll wrap up here shortly, Philip, but that leads us nicely to a question about Omnichannel. Casper is up to, as we've covered here today, more than 70 retail stores globally and Indeed, we noted that in addition to your own stores, Casper's products can be found at some really big name retail partners that help increase your retail footprint. You have espoused a common trait among direct-to-consumer companies that began in e-commerce in that you even told us again today that you maintain Casper will always aim to meet shoppers wherever they are. Can you share the key things you've learned to build a successful omni-channel strategy for your business? What are the must-have things for doing it right? And what are some avenues that perhaps didn't yield the results in Omnichannel you might have hoped for. We've had lots of lessons learned in Omnichannel. And I think one of the early lessons we learned is that there's no one size fits all in how you work with other retail partners. Um, You know, I think when we started, we said 
you know, there's the Casper way of, of doing something with, you know, traditional retail partners. And if they get on board, great, it's going to work. And if they don't, then we don't want to do business with you. And what we quickly learned was that that's not the case, that the way you're successful with every individual retail partner is different. And you have to listen. You have to understand what makes their business tick, who their customers are, how their salespeople are used to selling, why consumers are shopping for them. And so it, it actually is a much more involved process to work with retail partners than you know, how I initially thought, which is, well, if they want to sell our products, then great. It should be pretty easy to sign up with them and get on their store shelves or floor. Uh, and the reality is that uh, a lot of these retailers have been in existence for a long time. They have buyers that know their customers super well. They're building categories in really specific ways. And it's not just about getting product on the shelves in order to be successful. You have to think about the right product market fit with each individual retailer. And you have to think about what the, the shopper is going through. And there is an omni-channel element. Part of our thesis was that consumers, especially for high consideration purchases like sleep products, they're going online to do their research. They're walking into stores to aid their education. Oftentimes those are happening at the same time. People are on their phones reading about products while looking at them on the shelves. And so we really have to think about how to have multiple touch points and, and multiple facets of engaging with customers in a way that ultimately lets them buy wherever they want to buy that's most convenient for them. But think about building that in an infrastructure that's channel agnostic. I mean, we're just as happy if you buy Casper products through one of our retail partners as we are through our retail owned and operated stores as we are on our e-commerce store. And if we take that philosophy and just maximize the customer experience across these touch points, that will create the best experience. And so that's what we've tried to build. And it's just much harder to execute on than I think it would imply on a piece of paper when you're thinking about omnichannel. Last one, Philip, and it's something a little more personal to you and the workplace at Casper. Your company we've said here today has five co-founders and even among new D2C brands, you know, that that is a lot. For many years into the company's history, all five held active leadership roles in the business. And one theory that has been floated about your success with this dynamic is that there is no Steve Jobs at Casper, a single personality that comes to embody everything about the brand. And instead, the thinking goes, Casper is emboldened by its diversity of perspective. Now, that's all the fluffy stuff to running a company at this scale, but what were the challenges to having five people with something close to equal skin in the game atop a company of your size? Having five co-founders has actually worked out great for Casper. I think one of the keys to success were defining early on what each of our roles and responsibilities would be and ultimately kind of how we would structure decision making. So we, we said early on, you know, this isn't a democracy where every decision is going to be put to the vote of the five of us that we're going to run with, you know, a corporate structure, you know, me with the CEO role, but that we would collaborate, that we would be founders and, and you know, founders don't necessarily have like a, a legal definition, but there, there was always, you know, a set of decisions that came down to what the founders wanted, even as we had executives around us and other leaders. And we, we just worked really well as a team and continue to be very good friends. And that's not to say we haven't had our share of fights or debates and, and <laughs> debate culture, I think, is something that, that still uh, exists at Casper. And, and it becomes part of the culture because we said early on, like, that there's no hierarchy of ideas. Good ideas can come from anywhere. Let's make sure that we create a, a culture where the best idea wins, not just who's the boss and, and what they say goes. And so we, we tried to be thoughtful about defining the culture and then living by that in a world where the founders had a lot of decision-making kind of authority over some parts of the business. But at the end of the day, we wanted to build a, a good high-functioning business and empower our leaders and 
empower the people that were running the company to do their jobs. And so it's always been a debate and a balance. And, and we've tried to be thoughtful about checking in with ourselves and our peers around, are we striking that right balance? And you know, ultimately for Casper, you know, I, I certainly count myself lucky that, that I had the four co-founders I had and it's worked out great. And, and like I said, we continue to be good friends and, and it's been an incredible experience building Casper together. I want to thank our guest today, Philip Krim is the co-founder and CEO of Casper. And again, when you think about almost the founding members of these really large, really influential D2C companies of our age, Casper is right there at the top of that list. Philip, thank you for being generous with your time. Thank you for being here on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. Jason, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. All right, thanks again to Philip Krim, and thank you again for listening. If you like what you heard today, Stay tuned for our talk coming up next with Ariel Kay, the founder and CEO of Parachute, which of course is the bedding and linen brand you know well. They are up to 12 stores now across the US, really a founding member of the D2C elite, if you will. So please make sure you come back to hear Ariel. To find more of our interviews with guests like Chip Wilson, the founder of Lululemon, Seema Bansal, the co-founder of Venus A. Fleur, and Steve Madden, the man himself, visit us online at inconversation.shopifyplus.com. Dot com.